Good morning, Redeemer. Today's scripture reading is from the Old Testament book of Exodus, chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you have revealed yourself through the gift of your holy word. Thank you that um, you give us the gift of your Holy Spirit to illuminate our understanding, to illuminate our hearts so that we are able to look into scripture and see more than just theological stories or theological rules. We are able to see you. We are able to encounter you. And Lord, I, I pray that today, as we come before you, that you would allow us to be able to see you as you are, that you would shatter any false notion that we might have about you. I pray that you would shatter any idol that we have and that we call by your name. God, I pray that in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would create in us a people that worship you with spirit and in truth. God, I pray for our children who are continuing to learn about Jesus and learn about you. God, I pray that you would form their hearts to love you and to worship your name. God, and I pray that as a family of faith, that we would be a people that worship you in such a way that it's, a, it's attractive to the city around us, that it's attractive to the culture that surrounds us, that by the worship of your great name, you would draw all men to yourself. God, so we pray these things in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You can have your seat. We are at a spot in the book of Exodus where God is speaking to his people. It's a very famous passage of scripture that we know as the Ten Commandments. And this is a, a rather important part of the Bible. It's a part of the Bible that really shows us a, a vision for what it means to be a godly people. However, it's notable that this is a moment in the, in the book of Exodus that really is in the middle of the story. You see, God has rescued his people from the nation of Egypt. He has brought them out of slavery and he has brought them to the mountain of Sinai where he wants to speak to them, where he wants to make a covenant, a promise with them that they would be his people and that he would be their God. And it's astonishing when you actually read the text that when God speaks to his people in the words of the Ten Commandments, he is actually speaking out loud to his people. The nation of Israel are surrounding the mountain of Sinai. God's presence has come down onto this mountain. And he speaks with a, a thunderous volume. And they hear the words, the commandments of God. Later on in this chapter, you, you see how unbelievably terrifying of an experience this was. Because the people of Israel say... Please, 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 Moses will do whatever God says, but we can't afford to hear his voice anymore because he is so loud. He is so powerful that we are afraid that if he continues to speak to us, we will die because his voice is that strong. And so they do something a little interesting. They actually ask Moses to go into the thick darkness where the presence of God is. 
and to hear the voice of God on their behalf. What they're going to do is they're going to wait for Moses to come down from the mountain. And Moses is going to hear God's words and the words that he essentially hears as he is engaging the presence of God is what we now know as the Old Testament law. They're largely the books of the rest of Exodus and Leviticus. He is hearing the word of God spoken to him. He's writing it down so that he can give it to God's people. However, this takes quite a bit of time. It takes days. It takes months. And although the people of God were at one time in fear of God, they they worshipped him with a holy awe, they begin to grow a little bit distracted. And they begin to clamor amongst themselves. And they ask Aaron, who is the brother of Moses, to make for them an image so that they can worship. Now, this is really an interesting story. And so Aaron essentially improvises. He says, okay, give me your earrings. Give me your jewelry, um, the jewelry that you took from the nation of Egypt. And I'm going to put it into a fire, and I'm going to make this image. And so he does so, and he makes the image of a, a very famous image called a golden calf. And for years, whenever I heard that story, I always thought, man, this is so strange that the people of Israel would so quickly reject the God that brought them out of slavery. It made no sense to me. However, that's not exactly what happened. When you look closer at the text, I think something far more interesting happens. This is from Exodus chapter 32. And he, Aaron, received gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, this is the people of Israel, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. I think that's really fascinating because what is happening is the people of Israel are not rejecting the worship of the God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They are essentially saying, we're going to worship this cow and we're going to say that this cow is the divine agency that rescued us from Egypt. And Aaron himself actually says, we're going to worship this God, and it's going to be a feast day to the Lord. And in the Hebrew, that word is Yahweh. That's the name of God. Now, I think this is so fascinating because what has happened is Aaron hasn't made a brand new God. It's not like he said, well, we're going to reject Yahweh, and I'm going to make a new God for you. His name is Hank the Cow God, and you're going to worship him. It's not what happened. What has happened is Aaron has fashioned a visible version of God that the people of Israel want to worship. So the God that they would prefer to worship. And then he has ascribed to this idol the name of the true God. I think that's fascinating. Because if you fast forward a few thousand years... There's going to be a movie that is released named Talladega Nights. The Ballad of Ricky Bobby, the NASCAR driver. I think the most memorable scene of this particular movie is when Ricky Bobby, the race car driver, is sitting down and he is praying with his family. And who does he pray to? Baby Jesus, that's right. He prays to baby Jesus. He says the name baby Jesus over and over again. And finally, the the family stops the prayer and they say, why are you praying to baby Jesus? After all, baby Jesus grew up and became a man to which Ricky Bobby responds. And he says, well, I like Christmas Jesus the best. That's the one I want to pray to. And since I'm praying, I get to pray to whoever I want. And this 
commences this conversation at the dinner table. Ricky's best friend says that he wants to worship Jesus and imagine him as the lead singer of a rock and roll band. He's his party animal that he can party with. The kids talk about Jesus as a ninja warrior that can beat up all their enemies. And the wife says that she doesn't really care which version of Jesus that they pray to as long as that Jesus allows them to win race car races. And it is a very offensive scene. I'm not condoning it in the least sense. However, when I think about this scene, it's always convicted me because I think it's such an unbelievably accurate picture of American religiosity. Rather than worshiping the God of this Bible, the God who has revealed himself, a lot of times we'll, we'll just come up with this idea about God that we would prefer. And then we ascribe to that mental idol the name of Jesus. And we worship him. Now I tell you these two stories because I, I think when we talk about the concept of idolatry, we need to understand that it's just as much of a problem now as it ever was back in the days of ancient Israel. It's something that is deep within us. The great reformer John Calvin actually said that the mind of man, the, the heart of man is actually a factory of idols. This is something that we do rather naturally. And idolatry is important. It's something that God cares about very much because idolatry is all about worship. And today, as we observe and examine the second commandment of the Ten Commandments, we're going to look about what God has to say about worship. And there are three main ideas that I think we can draw from this text that, that tell us a lot about the nature of worship. Number one, worship is inevitable. Number two, worship is personal. And number three, worship is contagious. Worship is inevitable. Worship is personal. And worship is contagious. Point number one, worship is inevitable. What I mean by this is that the second commandment actually presupposes the need in all of humanity to worship something. Look at the text. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. So you see the question that this commandment is begging is not whether you worship. It's asking what do you worship and how do you worship? See, human beings by our very nature are worshipers. Now you might back up and say, you know what? I'm not really a religious person. I never have been. But I would still say that you worship something. By the word worship, I mean that you ascribe ultimate worth, ultimate value to someone, something, some idea, some circumstance. That in the core of your being, your heart looks to something as ultimate. And whenever your heart looks to something as ultimate and that thing is not God, the biblical term for that is idolatry. You see... We talked about this concept of idolatry a little bit last week when we examined the first commandment. However, I think this commandment goes a little bit further in showing how this tendency plays itself out. Specifically, the Word of God says that we are not to make a carved image of anything that's on the land, that's in the sea, or that's in the sky. Essentially, there is this tendency to confuse creation and the Creator. Specifically, we tend to worship things that are in creation rather than the creator. That's, that's what we do. Now, you or I might not have the challenge where we, we're really tempted you know, to, 
take our chisel out and make a wooden image of a cow and bow down and worship it. That's probably not your problem. However, what I would say is that we all tend to form our vision of ultimate reality around very creaturely notions, creaturely experiences. And so for you, you you may call upon the name of God, but God is something very different. God in your mind is something very different than how he reveals himself. And so you might worship God, but you essentially view God as a divine waiter who is there to heed your every beck and call, to meet your every desire, and to make you feel comfortable because you know what? The customer is always right. Such a vision of God is really formed by our very consumeristic American experience. Maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum, and you would say, you know what? When I, when I think of God, I think of an angry father who's abusive, who's ready to punish me for, for no reason whatsoever. He's just going to strike me and arbitrarily hurt me for no good reason at all. And that's, that's who you struggle believing that God is. Again, you've defined God not from who he is, but for who you expect him to be. Maybe neither for you. Maybe you struggle about thinking about God as really just this distant, absentee landlord who really doesn't get involved with his creation. He doesn't really care about the minutia and the details of our life. He's really off in some far universe, doesn't really care about what we do. Your version of Christianity is that God will help you if you help yourself. And here's the thing. When we view God this way, we are essentially defining God with our own imagination, by our own experiences. We are defining God. We are limiting God in terms of creation, rather than allowing him to be to us the the creator, the amazing God that he actually is. And so we need to understand that this little habit that we have isn't just bad theology. The Bible would call it idolatry. This is what theologian J.I. Packer says in his book, Knowing God. He says, to follow the imagination of one's heart in the realm of theology is the way to remain ignorant of God and to become an idol worshiper. The idol, in this case, being a false mental image of God, made by one's own speculation and imagination. You see, this gets to the heart of the second commandment, because whether or not you're dealing with a metal image or a mental image, idols are dangerous because they obscure the glory of God and they convey false ideas about God. So the question is, beg, what must we do in order to worship God, to truly worship the God That has revealed himself. And the answer is we must worship him according to his revealed word. This is why the Bible is so unbelievably essential to our worship. Because this Bible is able to to paint a picture of God for who he is. And when he began to read the words of scripture, this is a rather amazing God. This is not a God that can be limited to our vain imagination. He's not a God that is confined by our language. This is a God that is infinite. He is eternal. He is holy. He is glorious. He is powerful. He is all-knowing. However, he is also infinitely kind and gracious. He's merciful and he's wise. This is a God that is worthy of worship that is both reverent and holy, but also filled with passion and joy. This is an amazing God. And I think that this should press on us in a few ways. This is, um, I was thinking about this sermon and I was thinking about um, these last few months where we've been able to develop a relationship with our friends over at Jenkins Chapel Baptist Church. 
In the last few months, we've been able to do a few joint worship sets with them. They've come over here. We've gone over there. And it's been a, a, an absolute blast, and I feel like I've learned so much. But the reason we've done this is we're a primarily white congregation. They're a primarily black congregation. And we believe that if we actually believe that this stuff is true, that the gospel should heal racial division. And we see a tremendous amount of racial division in our city. And so we believe that that healing should begin in the church of God. It should begin in the house of God. And so we've learned a lot from one another. And I think we've learned enough to see that there's quite a difference in terms of cultural expression. Okay. So whenever I've gone over to Jenkins Chapel and I've preached the word of God, I tell you what, I know if it's a good sermon or not. (laughs) Because they tend to preach back to me and I love it. I absolutely love it. And I have this running joke with Dr. Staten, my friend, and I tell him, um, do you know how Caucasians say amen to a sermon? They write notes very vigorously. Um, They get really excited and they say, oh, yes, yes, well, we like that. And that's what we do. Culturally, we tend to be a little bit more reserved. Culturally, they tend to be a little bit more expressive. But I'll tell you this. I think a lot of times we, we hide behind a veneer of reverent and holy worship when really all that we're doing is we're being quiet Caucasians worshiping in our cultural comfort zone. And I think the Bible should push us to worship God with joy. That, that God invites us to worship him with passion and with expression. You know, the Psalms are actually drenched with images of expressive worship. Lifting our hands, shouting, speaking with our words, the glory of God, being able to bow before him and clap our hands. This is good. This is godly. This is scriptural and biblical. And so I encourage you, uh, allow yourself to step out in the way that you express your love for God. And if you're a worshiper of Jesus, to be able to, to worship him in passionate ways, in, in ways that might stretch you. And I'll, I'll tell you this, uh, whenever I hear sermon uh, illustrations where a guy says, you know what, you would yell at a football game, I'm the guy that would say, no, I don't. I, I would like to sit down and watch the game, you know. And so the reason we worship God is not just because um, he's, he's worthy to get excited about. It, we, we worship God in this way because he calls us to worship him in this way. We are called to worship him with reverence and fear, but also with passionate joy. You see, whenever we, we think about worshiping God, worship is inevitable. It's not a matter of whether or not you're worshiping. It's who you're worshiping. It's how you're worshiping. And true worship is according to the word of God. And anything less really is a type of idolatry. Point number two, worship is personal. And by this statement, I mean that God takes worship personally. Look at verse five. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. That's a really interesting statement. It's a really loaded statement. And I think this is a statement, unfortunately, that can be very misunderstood in our culture. I'll give you one example. A few years ago, I remember watching an interview with Oprah Winfrey. And Oprah had actually grown up going to church as a child. However, as she became an adult, she rejected what she understood to be Christianity. And as the interviewer found out about this, she She asked her, why did you reject Christianity? And Oprah pointed to this verse. She said, well, the Bible says that God is a jealous God. And I don't like a God that's jealous. I don't want God to be jealous. I don't want a God that wants the things that I have. And ultimately, as you might suspect, Oprah had completely misunderstood what this verse means. See, God is a jealous God. 
But he's not jealous of you. He's jealous for you. He's a jealous God because he's a God that is in love. See, he doesn't need anything. He doesn't need anything that we have. Scripture says that he is self-sufficient, that he's independent. He is contingent upon nothing and no one. In fact, all of the universe is rooted in and founded upon his reality. He needs nothing. However, he is a God. Although he is self-sufficient in every way, he chooses to love us. He chooses to invite us into a relationship with him. And that is absolutely amazing. That an infinite, glorious God actually wants to relate with people like you and me. That should amaze us. That should blow our minds. And it's in that context that it makes sense that he's a jealous God. He's jealous for us. He loves us. He will not tolerate any rival. That is why he's not a fan of our idols. That's why he won't tolerate them. If you think about it, it makes sense in in context of a monogamous marriage. A marriage, a good biblical marriage is monogamous. It's it's covenantal. It's, It's exclusive. So my wife, Kate, and I, I love my wife and she loves me. By the grace of God, we have a very healthy and a very thriving marriage. However, I I will tell you this. There would be a problem if one day I told her, you know what, Kate, I love you. I love your short blonde hair. I love your big brown eyes. Because you see, the thing is, is she has long brown hair and she has big blue eyes. She would have a problem if I told her I love her, but I call her by another woman's name. Because you see, our love is a jealous love. It's an exclusive love. If we were to do that, all of a sudden, I guarantee you, I would not have a thriving or healthy marriage anymore. (laughs) See, God takes worship personally because he is a personal God. He is a jealous God and he is a loving God. And so... One of the things that this should do is it should allow us to put the idea of sin into another category. Because most of us, when we think of the word sin, probably what we're thinking about is some type of rule book, a list of rules, and we break the rule. We cross over the boundary and there's legal consequences for breaking a rule. But God always thinks of sin in completely relational terms. Sin is is not just a matter of breaking rules. It is that, but it is something more. Sin is essentially spiritual adultery that's rooted in the false worship of idolatry. This is why we, we have to reject sin. This is why we pursue holiness. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We avoid sin, not because we're trying to earn the approval of God. If you're in Christ Jesus, you already have that. We reject sin because we want to love the God who has so faithfully loved us. Point number three, worship is contagious. Look at the last part of the text again. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. See, this text is showing us something that I think a lot of times our very individualistic culture struggles with. And that is, worship isn't just about you. There's a trickle-down effect that happens. Our worship bleeds down onto our families. It influences our close relationships. It even has the potential to influence the culture that is around us. 
And one of the things that is explicitly said in this text is that hauntingly, idolatry is something that can affect your kids, your grandkids, and even your great-grandkids. I want to be very careful as I talk about this because we, we have a very multi-generational church. And one of the, the pastoral issues that I deal with so very often is men and women who are parents of adult children, and they love Jesus. They love Jesus with all of their hearts. But for whatever reason, their child or their children are not close to God. They've rejected what they have perceived to be Christianity. And, and as parents, their hearts are, are heavy. Their hearts are broken. And I want you to know something very, very clearly. If that's you, there is no condemnation in Christ. None. You're in Jesus. There's no condemnation whatsoever. And I'm not trying to talk about bad parents. What I want to talk about is how bad idols are. And especially you younger parents, you need to hear this. Idols are vicious. And they don't just want you, they want your kids. This is a a very biblical theme that we actually see throughout the journey of Scripture. See, there was a a god that was worshipped in the ancient Near East. His name was Baal. And Baal was the lord of the sky. He was the god who controlled whether or not it rained. And the reason he was such a popular god is because most of society at this time were farmers. They were in agriculture, and so they wanted good crops. And so if there was a situation where their land went into drought, they wanted to worship Baal. They were tempted to lift their voices to this God so that he might have favor upon them and send rain onto the crops. However, worship of Baal was a a very costly endeavor. Because you see, Baal required the blood, the sacrifice of your firstborn child. That's how wicked um, the, the Canaanite religions were. So when the people of Israel were going into the land of Canaan, that's what they were engaging. They were engaging people that were willingly sacrificing their children so that they could have a good crop. You see, we struggle with that because we, we look back in history and we suffer what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. And we say, oh, those silly ancient people. No way we would ever do that. That was so barbaric. We've advanced so far. Thankfully, we have progressed as a civilization that we would not do anything so petty or superstitious. But I would challenge you and say, in some sense, we as a culture might even be a little bit worse. See, Baal only required one of your kids. But there are many people today that would gladly not just give up one of their kids, but their entire family. They would sacrifice all of their kids. They would even sacrifice their marriage simply so they could get ahead in success. Simply so they could be able to entertain a hobby that they feel entitled to. Simply so that they could be able to be entitled to their addiction of choice. Simply so that they could do whatever makes them happy. In many ways, we we struggle with a much deeper and a much darker form of idolatry. But you see... I love this commandment and I love this passage of scripture because it ends on a profound note of hope. Because you see, even though the the iniquity of sin and idolatry is visited onto the third and fourth generation, for those who love God, who walk according to his commandments, the blessing of God visits them to thousands of generations. This means that even though the power of idolatry is great, the power of God is so much greater. 
So I encourage you, if you are praying over an adult child that you want to see love Jesus that is walking very far away from God right now, I encourage you, don't stop praying. Don't stop seeking the face of God because God is a God who has made promises and he is faithful to those promises. Trust, believe, continue to worship because your worship is still contagious and the seeds that you have planted may just well bring new life when you least expect it. It's interesting to me as we look into these first few commandments that they're all about worship. I mean, the Ten Commandments are supposed to be about morality, right? However, the first few commandments are all about how we worship God. And that's saying something rather significant because you see in the Bible, all of Christian morality is rooted in worship. It's rooted in the worship of an amazing God. This is why N.T. Wright says, when we begin to glimpse the reality of God, the natural reaction is to worship him. Not to have that reaction is a fairly sure sign that we haven't yet really understood who he is or what he's done. See, worship is a necessary response to the reality that God is who he says he is. See, for the Israelites, worship was a response to God for having delivered them out of slavery under Pharaoh. But for Christians, worship is a response to the God who has delivered us from the slavery of sin and death through his son, Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus is the reason we worship. That's why Jesus is the one we worship. Because when we could never make an image that could contain the infinite God, God gave us Jesus, who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his divine nature in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. Jesus is the pledge of God's faithful, never-ending love, even when we faithlessly turn to idols. Jesus is the one who is God's only son, freely given to us, freely offered for us, freely sacrificed for us to free us from the idols who want to kill us and to kill our family. When we begin to believe who Jesus actually is, if this really is true, and it is, this is a God that is worthy of our worship and worthy of our praise. And if you do not yet know Jesus, if you do not yet worship Jesus, I encourage you, believe in him today. Trust in him today. Worship him today. And for all of us, Redeemer, may we respond to the word of God, to the revealed son of God in worship. Would we be a people that seek to faithfully worship the God who has faithfully loved us? And would we worship in such a way that is contagious to our city and to the world around us? Because Jesus is a God who is worthy of our worship. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the gospel of grace. Thank you that you welcome us to salvation, not when we deserve it, but precisely because we don't. That your offer of grace is a free offer, that you invite anyone who would love you to come before you and to believe in you. God, I pray that by the the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit, you would form our hearts to be a people that worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, and I, especially today, want to pray over children that are represented by parents in this room. I pray for older parents with adult children who may not walk with Jesus, God. And I pray that you would rescue those children, that you would cause the seeds that were planted long ago 
to come and to bring forth life. God, I pray for young parents in this room as they seek to disciple their kids to worship the risen Lord and the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray that they would be moms and dads that model what it is to believe and to trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, I pray for all of us today that we would be a people that, that allow the truth of your sacrificial love for us to reorient every aspect of our lives, that it would be the very thing that inspires us in the way that we live and that, the way that we treat one another. God, you are a God that has loved us unconditionally, God, and I pray in response we would be a people who live lives of worship that are marked by unconditional love. God, as we come before um, your table today, as we take this bread and this juice representative of your body and your blood, I pray your Holy Spirit would speak the truth of your gospel into our bodies, that this would be so real to us, that we would be nourished by the truth of your grace, and that we would walk from this place a people who go forth and give that grace to the world that needs it. Lord, we love you and we commit this time to you. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.